world's not as simple as it used to be. It's not enough to be a good guy anymore. We have to be the best. The time has come. All will be accounted for. Or we will hunt them. Stand up. It's time to be the heroes we were always meant to be. Okay, so as we so often do when we start the podcast, we uh, find ourselves wondering, whatever happened to teenage star and producer of the fantastic creative collaborative project Hit Record, Joseph Gordon-Levitt? I still think it's Hit Record, but go on. So, (laughs) Hit Record slash Hit Record, the Wikipedia page kind of peters out. (laughs) Like his career? (laughs) I mean, yeah, like, really? He was he was a big rising star for a while. Yeah. What's he got coming out soon? Because it was like Angels in the Outfield, followed closely by Third Rock from the Sun, and, uh, oh my gosh, Ten Things I Hate About You. I feel like he really only created hit, oh, this, oh, Wikipedia has a guide on how to say it, but I don't want to. <laughs> I feel like he only created Hit Record just so he could produce Don John. Just so he could get all nice and sweaty with uh, Scarlett Johansson. And that's why he hasn't done much sense. Because what do you do after that? What do you do once you've, once, once you've achieved your dream? I mean, he, he did put out a, like another show in 2020 called Create Together. And I think that's the most recent thing that I've been able to identify that he's done. Oh, nope. Mr. Corman, 2021. Uh, he, uh, JGL directed and starred in an Apple TV Plus show. Oh, and he was the voice of Jiminy Cricket in that Disney Pinocchio show that nobody's watching. I'm refusing oh. to. I, I don't. I'm so mad at Disney. It's like you have more money than God, and yet you're just repackaging. No, it's deeply infuriating. I, I really dislike the fact that, you know, all of these characters and and pop culture icons from our childhood keep getting packaged and repackaged and sold back to us over and over and over again without much variation or innovation anyway let's talk about comic books uh trial of the chicago seven was legit he was in that i liked that this is the superhuman registration podcast where we read uh marvel comics and hopefully find some new and interesting stuff because i do think that sometimes this is an industry that stagnates but you know what we are still finding joy in the journey my name is steven i've got john and i've got aldo with me here tonight how are you two doing i forgot that joseph gordon levitt was cobra commander in the gi joe <laughs> oh my gosh he was cobra commander he was <laughs> people jump from inception to looper and you gotta remember you know is that is that his is his peak inception? No. Oh, probably. He hasn't Actually, peaked. Actually, probably. What's this? Dark Knight no. Rises. Dark Knight Rises. That doesn't count because it just it was it was crap. He was good in it. He was good in Lincoln. Who was he in Lincoln? I didn't. I never saw Lincoln. He's well. You should watch Lincoln. He's uh. He's Robert Lincoln. He's the son. He's you know. Um. He but was yeah. Good, he's tri- good in Looper. He's good in Looper. Trial of the Chicago yeah. Seven. Why are we down on Joseph Gordon-Levitt? We're not down on him. It just feel like he's disappeared. No, he just, he's on this, like, Mr. Corman, like, that's a regular gig. And by disappeared, I guess it means he disappeared from nerd franchises. That's really what it is. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Right. Well, he's in this, he's in this uh, Uber show, right? So that's, you know, that's what he's doing right now. He was in Star Wars Visions. He did a voice. Anyways, <laughs> I apologize for taking us off. I just want to go on record as being a fan, you know. I am indifferent to him. Are you going to hit that <laughs> A little record? jealous. Uh, yeah. On that hit record. 
Anyways, I'm doing okay, Stephen. Thank you for asking me earlier. <laughs> uh, five minutes ago. I'm feeling yeah. pedantic. <laughs> <laughs> so we read a trio of single-issue stories again this week. Pretty excited about these. These were, these were interesting and fun. So we read a story about Adam Warlock. We read a story about X-Men. And then we read a story about Spider-Man. And if it's okay with the two of you, I'm going to propose that we discuss them in that order. All right. That works for me. Okay, so let us begin. Wait, which one was first? <laughs> Sorry. I, was, I opened up my app and it was on the wrong thing. <laughs> so, let us begin with Marvel Premiere featuring Warlock number one. A story that is not actually all that much about Adam Warlock. The story was written by Roy Thomas... We got pencils by Gil Kane. Inker was Dan Adkins, and Sam Rosen was the letterer. Uh, sorry to jump in, I just was on that page. Yep, and I was not. I was transitioning between the app page and the actual comic page. Anyway, so this story is not really about Warlock as much as it is about the High Evolutionary. A kind of bizarre character from Marvel Comics history that I know very little about. He created some animal people, one of whom was a cow woman hybrid who helped raise Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch. Uh, he uses sometimes foe of, I believe, the Fantastic Four and of, I think, the X-Men on a couple of occasions. He is wandering through space with uh, some of his few remaining loyal Beastmen and on the run from another Beastman that he created called, imaginatively, the Man-Beast. While he's on his journey, he's trying to find a spot in the universe where he can deposit this very special piece of Earth and cultivate it into a giant planet called Counter-Earth, which is just going to be like his creation. That's going to be a perfect race of humanity where there is no hatred, no violent instinct or anything like that. As he's floating on his way through space, he finds this strange cocoon out there in the middle of the nothingness. They bring it on board. Turns out the cocoon is containing the body of this perfect human specimen known only as him. The... Like, like Cher. Yeah, like Cher. Uh, or Madonna. Kind of weirdly a lot in common with Madonna because Madonna's name very much has weird sort of religious parallels, what with, you know, Virgin Mary and all of that. And Warlock is very much a Christ slash Adam figure, but we'll get into that. Isn't he also involved with like the Madonna saga or something like that? I don't know. I don't know. That's a that's an Avengers thing that we'll probably need to look up at some point. But man, a lot of those early Avengers stories give me hives. Even when they're good, they're just so hard to read. Anyway, so Warlock and the High Evolutionary kind of swap stories. The High Evolutionary talks about run-ins that he's had with Thor and with the Hulk. And Warlock has also had run-ins with Thor. And Warlock kind of watches as the High Evolutionary creates his counter-Earth. There's this whole sort of like creation myth arc. And as the High Evolutionary creates man and prepares to remove from this version of man their violent instinct, he just gets tired and takes a little nappy nap. At which point the Man-Beast shows up, kills the High Evolutionary's faithful like animal servants, and introduces murder into the world of the Counter-Earth. After he does this, the High Evolutionary wakes up and they fight. Warlock wakes up after that and comes out of his cocoon and, and Man-Beast kind of escapes. High Evolutionary plans on destroying this world that he created. And Warlock says, no, you shouldn't do it. Let me go down there and let me help them. 
So the high evolutionary says, Warlock, you can do this. I'm going to call you Warlock, or somebody's going to call you Warlock, so we can name the series Warlock. And also, here, have this green rock. We'll explain it later. Uh, readers who have experienced a lot of Marvel comics, or those who have been with us from the very beginning, will know that that is actually one of the uh, Infinity Gems. And Adam Warlock has the Soul Stone, which winds up being a major deal in the Infinity Gauntlet story. So, yeah, that's the story in a nutshell. Uh, I've got some... Comments on a kind of mixed bag. I think a lot of it's really interesting. A lot of it is unfortunately quite dull. But yeah, I'm actually glad to have read this. Warlock is a character I've always found very interesting, mainly due to his involvement in the Infinity Gauntlet story, which was one of my first comics that I really, really loved. And so I've always had this weird attachment for the character, even though I've not really known much about him. What did the two of you think? Um, I didn't dislike this, um, but like, it seems... I, I don't know how you managed to kind of crib from... Jack Kirby and the Bible at the same time, but they did it. Well, I feel like Kirby did that a fair bit, too. Like, that's the new gods. Yeah. Um, but, like, straight up, like, man-beast is, you know, like, the, the Satan figure, you know, and, like, introduces murder, and, like, they, they like, the worst thing possible, and, you know, a high evolutionary rests after he completes his work, his earth. Um, I don't know. It, it's kind of just, like, things happen... Uh, I don't know. I didn't dislike it. There's some, you know, cool designs in here. Um, you know, you can tell that this is like setting things up or whatever. I, I don't know. Aldo, <laughs> do you have anything? I'm, I'm just like flipping through trying to find some highlights, but it's yeah. I, I'm just real happy that Stephen understood what was going on because, like, for about the first half of that um, issue, I was pretty lost, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> and you summed it up, and I was like, "Am I dumb?" <laughs> <laughs> It is very I was like, that makes and it sense. starts with characters that we know nothing about, right? Yeah. I just remember, like, flip, like, uh, at first I started flipping through it, and I was like, okay, hey, look, there's the Hulk, he's only there for one page. So then I started reading it, and I don't know if I just wasn't paying attention enough at the beginning, but it just kind of felt like he's like, I'm tired, and then there's the Hulk. Oh, I'm tired. And I was like, what is going on? But apart from that, I liked it, I liked what it was trying to set up. I just, I just don't know that I have any strong opinions. I feel like I'm very neutral to the book. Mostly in the sense that I don't feel like a whole lot happens. It's yeah, pure it's origin story. Flashbacks at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like there's really not a whole lot that happens. It feels like this just kind of, you know, like you said, it's, it's an origin story. It's just a setup book. It's specifically Genesis 1. It's the origin of the yeah. Bible. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Real original high evolutionary. <laughs> yeah so i i don't know i just i just unfortunately don't have a lot to say mostly because i don't think for for it being 20 something pages i feel like there just wasn't a whole lot that actually happened there's there's like i say i've got some stuff that i can say about it um i don't entirely hate it either um but i do think my biggest criticism of it is that it is very on the nose like when kirby handled bible stories they had a very particular twist to them and it was more than aesthetic. Like, there was definitely aesthetic bits to it where, you know, there are the the good divine beings and the evil divine beings and they fight each other. But there's also this very real sense of, like, drama that is very Kirby. It's very personal. It's very relatable. Fourth World is the easiest comparison to make where you've got the gods of... Oh my gosh, I forgot the name of the, the new gods, like, their world. 
that's where like Orion comes from, Mr. Miracle. Uh, these are all the good guys. And then there's the bad guys who live on Apocalypse with Darkseid. New Genesis, that's the name of there. So, you know, New Genesis, Book of Genesis. Like there are definitely parallels to the Bible, but it feels very like personal and very relatable. Orion is the son of Darkseid who was raised on New Genesis and has all of the good influences of New Genesis. And Mr. Miracle, Scott Free, is the son of New Genesis. He's the son of the High Father, I believe, and raised on Apocalypse. And he's still a good person. Like, very, like, high drama, high intrigue stories about good and evil. This is literally just the, the Genesis chapter one with a Jack Kirby skin. It's God as the high evolutionary. The serpent in the Garden of Eden is a weird werewolf. And Jesus Christ is a golden-skinned man in a loincloth. They even have a crucifixion scene in the middle of it on page 21. So it's like... And like, are we to, are we to take... Did they have like a sped-up Earth history? Or were they chilling on the other side of the sun, watching all this happen in real time? You know, over thousands and thousands of years, well, I mean, millions of years, unless he was speeding up the creation as well, because that's, you know, millions of years as well. I, I don't know, that was a little like, is it, I, I and, and like, I'm just, in, I'm just wondering, and I'm, I'm not like, trying to say anything positive, negative, whatever, because to a certain point, theology from Judaism and from Christianity are the same, until about the New Testament, and then we kind of veered off. Uh, in Christianity from Judaism. Jack Kirby, if I um, remember, um, was raised Jewish, of the Jewish faith. I don't know if he kept that through his adult life. Roy Thomas um, was at a parochial Lutheran school, according to Wikipedia, and attended St. Paul Lutheran Church. Uh, as an adult, was not religious, was a lapsed Lutheran, he says. So, like, is it that we're seeing, you know, the creation story from, you know, two different angles when we're looking at, like, new gods versus this? I don't know. I don't know if that's playing a part of it or what. I don't know. Um, I feel like one is a story that's like drawing inspiration from existing creation myths to kind of create its own creation myth. And another one is using our creation myth as a starting point to tell a different story, which I think are both valid approaches. The problem is the second approach doesn't create something that is like super interesting to read on its own. Like, I want to read issue two of this. Issue one is doing almost nothing for me. Most of the positive stuff that I have to say about it is down to the art, which I think is a very good Kirby impersonation. Yeah, no, I liked the art, but it is very clear, like, hey, this is in the style of Jack Kirby, you know? And there's nothing wrong with that in my book, because I really <laughs> like Jack Kirby. And I would almost say that this book has, like, a... Maybe a little bit of a better sense of anatomy than Kirby sometimes does. Because Kirby gets very stylized and focuses more on action than on appropriate anatomy. But I look at, like, on page 12, top of page 12, uh, we're in a flashback where Warlock is fighting Thor. And Thor smacks Warlock so hard that he, like, falls backwards. And his body's, like, all twisted and contorted to really sell the... Uh, <laughs> The, the force of that hit, but it's contorted in a way that still feels like that is anatomically possible, just really uncomfortable. So it's like, I feel like there's some stuff, the imagination is is pure Kirby and thus kind of comes off as a little bit derivative, but there are some things that the, the art does here that show that Gil Kane is a talented artist in his own right and does things that maybe don't seem as derivative of Kirby, just because his anatomy, I think, is stronger than Kirby's. 
page six I was going to point out because there's good foreshortening where the high evolutionary is out of his armor, puts himself on this table, um, and he's you know trying to use a similar procedure that turned Banner into the Hulk to turn himself into a, a higher form there. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things I liked, or actually not liked, sorry, let me rephrase that. I think one of the things that comes to mind, especially as we're talking about this kind of being a creation myth, being an origin story and all this stuff, I think for me the quickest point of comparison to this is the Dawn of X prelude stuff that we read. Uh-huh. Interesting. Where both of these books kind of feel like, well, they don't kind of feel because they are setting up stuff that we're going to be, you know, hopefully looking at long term, so forth and so forth. The difference being that Dawn of X actually makes that enjoyable. <laughs> yeah. And this... It felt like homework, but it's a graphic novel, so I'm not, I don't hate it, <laughs> but it still feels a little <laughs> bit like. Yeah, and I think that's an interesting, like, skill that, uh, maybe skill's the wrong word, but I think contemporary comics going from, like, mid-2000s to now, when they have an origin story to tell, they try to make that origin story itself a compelling read. Whereas I think in the past, there was this idea that you really should have read this other stuff before we get to the story that we want to tell. So we're going to make sure that you understand this other stuff before we move on. And I don't know that one is necessarily inherently better than the other, but I do know which one I would prefer to read. This this particular issue, I feel like, is, is pure chore to read until about the time that the creation myth itself actually starts. And then it's still a chore, but it's not a pure chore, because then it's like, okay, something is actually happening. There's some forward movement here. And that's really only about, I think, 12 pages of this 28-page story, something like that. And so, yeah, I think this story struggles a little bit with trying to make sure that the reader is caught up on everything. Whereas I, I, I think nowadays we've kind of accepted the fact that Every comic is going to be somebody's first, and you can't catch everyone up on everything. So you just focus on telling a good story, and the things that the reader doesn't understand will hopefully drive them to pick up more comics. Which, that's, that's you know, sometimes uh, like a good comic, you can forget about that, where it's it, it approaches art, where it's like this, this creative team had a, a story to tell, and it was really important to them, and we're, you know, lucky that we get to see it, and, and look how good of a job they did. But comics are there to be read to, you know, comics were, Neil Adams gave an interview and was talking about, you know, how comics got printed in the first place, like going from just in the newspaper or whatever. It's a way for, you know, people who are running printing presses, you know, like, we got to keep them running. What can we print? What can we print? Uh, We'll do these books. We'll do these books. And how about comic books? Let's do comic books. And so you need to, you need to be making money off of them, getting people into comics and everything. So there is that kind of in the background, but it's, you know, a rare book that isn't just trying to get you hooked into more of them. If it's a a good comic, it'll do that without you seeing, you know, that you're being manipulated, I think. The more, I gotta be honest, the more I'm looking at this art, the more I like it. Yeah, I think the art's really good. You can see that it's, yeah, straight up like a a Kirby-esque style but there's some very interesting poses we go from you know the the typical panel breakdown on page 15 here where um you know it's been a couple of pages with these smaller panels where he's breaking you know he's he's putting together his earth and then we get this 
one large splash page with a high evolutionary. He's sweating in his armor. He's got his hands on the controls and finally puts life onto his planet. And we see, you know, the like trilobites and like, earth, you know, underwater life at the top of the page when the, you know, the, it's, the, the water has come in. And then at the bottom of the page, we get, you know, uh, dinosaurs as well as, you know, lions and tigers and bears. Oh my, okay. Oh, it's a, it's a chimp and it's a monkey and it's a tiger. Fine. And then the, the butt of some other kind of animal. It's blue. I can't tell. And then, <laughs> Then we get people right and he shows like a evolutionary line of them and everything like that like I, I, it's just i don't know the more i look at it the more i appreciate it so I, I think this is improving my my original um opinion of the book and um, adam warlock looks cool i don't know i've a guilty pleasure in the last couple of weeks i've been um listening to uh, golden sun this uh sci-fi series it's like dystopian future where all of humanity is separated into different like casts and like your role in society is you know if you're a gold you're a ruler if you're a red then you're a minor and you're the lowest and you know everything sucks and it's you know it's it's like every other dystopian book you've read or whatever so but seeing you know the the main characters in this story are these golden figures and so that's kind of like an adam war what adam warlock looks like and so it's just it's just cool to see golden sun is also a fantastic rpg series on the game boy advance that's actually what i thought he was talking about <laughs> my point of reference is the video game yeah same <laughs> no, yeah, that's the real the Red Switch trilogy. i've had that recommended to me before but i've never read them it's you know what it is like pierce brown it's not bad the audiobook performance is good um it feels very much like hunger games or like a, you know half a dozen other things you know this uh dystopian you know teen kind of fantasy but like the more it goes on the more you like the characters and everything but just like the 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 golden perfect people or whatever um you know we saw that in guardians of the galaxy volume two and then we get it you know here with adam warlock and we're going to get more of it in uh guardians of the galaxy volume three adam warlock's going to be in that movie it's uh will poulter is going to be him so he's the guy with the eyebrows uh-huh and yep. if you look at and if you look him up if you if you Google search the guy with the eyebrows, he comes up. Are you sure it's not that guy who's in the NBA who has like the like almost oh almost Chocula level of uh, like unibrow kind of look? No, it's 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 Poulter. I I just googled guy with the eyebrows and it did bring up Will Poulter. I thought that was a joke, <laughs> but it actually did. It was not a joke. I was legitimately saying that that's that is a thing. It was a joke at first, and now that now Google's been trained to bring up Will Poulter every time somebody googles the guy with the eyebrows. Oh, he's gonna be Adam Warlock, and in case you only know him from the Meet the Millers meme, where you guys are getting paid, um, he's in. Uh, why didn't they ask about Evans? It's a weird title. It's an Agatha. I think it's an Agatha Christie, but it's a recent. Um, like TV movie that was really good, and he was good mm-hmm. in it. Yeah, he's he's a few things. He's also in Mace Runner, talking about yeah, dystopian. Uh, in uh, yeah, yeah. Also in Midsummer. Apparently, I don't remember that, but I also blocked out a lot of Midsummer. So you know, fair. That's what everyone says, and I don't want to see it for that reason. Where everyone's like, eh. so I would say it's a worth a watch, but also I have also made an effort to block out most of it. So take that for what it is. I guess there you go. <laughs> I got one more thing I really want to say. As much as I like struggled with reading it, there was a really great moment where High Evolutionary is starting into the creation and Warlock, before he's got the name Warlock, he's, he's just him for most of this, which is silly, asks the High Evolutionary, why are you doing this? Like, this is 
completely silly. This seems like a big waste of time. It looks like it's really hard. So why are you doing it? This seems like just such a waste. And the high evolutionary responds and says, waste? No, my friend, the act of creation is its own end. And I gotta say, I felt that. That's the sort of like creator's philosophy that really appeals to me. That's like, I have to make this thing because the act of making something is in and of itself very worth. So as much as I like struggled with this book, that one little bit of philosophy hit me exactly where I wanted or where I needed to be hit. So is that inspiring you to, to pick up your uh, writing again? Oh man, I, if I only had time. <laughs> i thought that's what this was leading up to i thought you were gonna say you immediately put the book november out. is coming so you're like i have to write <laughs> i i yeah nanowrimo is almost certainly not happening this year but yeah I, it does make me want to get back into writing or drawing or just some of the the creative stuff that i used to while away my hours with before i had a baby child yeah you know what is coming though is uh nap or rimo which is i'm just gonna nap <laughs> that sounds let me hey let's just be that sounds delightful <laughs> right? i gotta nap through a fifty thousand word audiobook <laughs> mm. curl up curl up on a bearskin rug in front of a fire naporimo uh anybody else want to say something about this story i don't this is the most neutral i've ever been on a book and i don't know how to feel about that that in and of itself is a new experience, so maybe that's something to its credit. <laughs> uh, so I would say let's move on to X-Men next, unless somebody feels really strongly about doing Spider-Man next. No, I know how we all feel about Spider-Man. It's going to have to wait for last, so I'll go through X-Men. Uh, uh, this, this, you know, is a classic that I wanted to get to uh, at some point, and it is a single issue, so I jumped on that. But we read Giant Size X-Men number one. And it was, um, co-creators were Lynn Ween, Dave Cockrum, colorist Glennis Ween, and John Costanza was the letterer. So a little bit of backstory, I promise I'm going to go quickly, but it's just really interesting to me. Stan and Jack created the X-Men and that was the, you know, the mid sixties, never a big hit. And they just let the title die, uh, at the end of the sixties. And then, uh, even with, uh, it was, Roy Thomas and Neil Adams doing a couple of issues that were interesting and kind of uh, people liked their style to it, but then it, it was, you know, not quite enough. But then they reprinted it and just said, yeah, why not? Let's just, you know, people can, you know, buy the reprints. And they, they did. And it got popular enough when a new editor came in, a new head of Marvel, um, they wanted to get... Um, foreign readers interested in Marvel Comics, and they thought, let's get an international team of, of mutants together. So this picks up right there. So we have Aurora Monroe from, uh, I, I think she's actually from Egypt, but we meet up with her in Kenya. Piotr Rasputin, who is from Lake Baikal in Siberia. We have um, Banshee, and I forget his name. I forget the Betsy's name from Ireland, who has previously helped out the X-Men before. Sunfire from Japan. Uh, Kurt Wagner, the Nightcrawler from Germany. John Proudstar, who is in, uh, a member of the Apache Nation. Now I'm worried that it was the Navajo Nation and I have it completely wrong. No, I think they say he's Apache in this, like, Professor X calls all the Apaches cowards. Oh, boy. Uh, so we have him. <laughs> I think he was trying to goad him into joining the team. And this uh, character that, that uh, Len Wien had created, a uh, little-known um, um, Canadian mutant, 
a part of Weapon X. Oh, yeah, Wolverine. Yeah, Wolverine. So this is where he joins the X-Men. Um, the original X-Men have vanished, and uh, I almost said Patrick Stewart. I honestly almost said Patrick Stewart. Charles Xavier gathers this international team. He visits each of them in their different um, countries of origin and says, look, Cyclops is still here. He's going to tell you what happened. And the original X-Men were hit by some mysterious force as they were investigating this mutant signature on this island. Uh, this uh, this atoll, uh, atoll, atoll, a group of islands that came up from volcanic activity. Anyway, they go to the island. They say, we need to go rescue the original X-Men. They go. Turns out, whoa, it's not a mutant that's there. It's the whole island, and it's Krakoa. They fight Krakoa. They uh, work together, use their powers. They end up severing it from the earth because that's what's, you know, making it strong. They uh, all display their powers to great effect and then come back um, and have a big X-Men team and this kicks off uh, goes into uh, there's a few more issues of this team and then we get uh, the Chris Claremont run uh, Chris Claremont at this time was like an assistant editor and was just chomping at the bit to you know get involved and, and be part of some story and, and really was interested in it and then just like you know it took off after that as we know so um, I really enjoyed this, but it's also, you know, personal to me because I like the X-Men and this is, you know, a big moment where the team expands and we get these, you know, now classic characters. I enjoyed the art. Um, the writing is it, dated. <laughs> the style is, you know, a little dated, sure, but I still, you know, still liked it for what it was. What did you all think? I really like the part where Sunfire uh, throws a his fit disappears for all of a page and a half and then when he comes back somebody on the x-jet is like there he is there's the jab and i was just like oh boy oh yeah oh boy (laughs) i i don't actually like that part that was that was sarcasm um (laughs) (laughs) was it i yeah that that (laughs) struck me the wrong way because it was like first of all it's dumb that he leaves for like six panels it's not even a whole page and a half he's like this is dumb all of you are dumb and i'm way better than this and see ya and then he chases down the jet, and he's like, just kidding. Yeah, so so actually, like, serious, uh, I guess, criticism aside, Sun, Sunfire is just unlikable. And yeah. I hate that he's so easy to convince to join, and then immediately he's like, you're wasting my time, old man. He's like, no, I don't take orders from nobody. Hey, you, you scrawny little blue elf-looking dude. You're a coward, because all you do is teleport. As if he chose that. As if he chose his mutant power. Anyways... Ah, I don't like Sunfire. I don't think you're supposed to like Sunfire, but he really sucks. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to reinforce that did a good job, because I didn't like him at all. <laughs> That's an interesting aspect of this, is it, it feels weirdly like, I don't know, all of these characters feel like they are stereotypes of the nations that they come from. Well, maybe not yeah. all of these characters. Sunfire is this xenophobe, imperialist Storm is worshipped as a deity by the the people of Africa, which kind of invokes some really unfortunate stereotypes of, you know, backwards natives, that sort of thing. And Colossus, like, when he's asked to help people, he's like, but don't I belong to the state? Because he's just a good little communist boy. And that aspect of things... (laughs) To be fair, that was kind of... That was, I mean, some people really thought that way, my, my comrade. I know, and frankly, some people still kind of feel that way. I think it's just, like, a strength of these characters that, like, that didn't completely sink them all from the beginning. Yeah, and I think they were really, I think, 
they were trying to is it is it ignorance that like they were presented in this way because we we they grow out of these you know unfortunate origins here right and i think that each of these are you know, are special characters in their own right that you know do more i mean i see it as someone not offended by this because of, you know i'm very white and so it's like it's like hey you know these are great characters and and i think that they you know do well to like illustrate more about like different parts of the world and it's an international team and it's representation and blah 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 but also like they it wasn't like I don't know. There's never. There's no mutants from Indiana. Nobody would care if there were. <laughs> there probably are mutants from Indiana. There's no mutants from Ogden. <laughs> no. <laughs> there's no mutants from Bend, Oregon. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I, I the thing is, I also don't feel like okay. Yeah, nowadays you really can't do kind of racist uh, archetypes anymore right because we've as a society have agreed that that's not really kosher that people aren't really that easy to put a label on because people from different countries have such a deep rich variety within those countries that it's not really fair to do those stereotypes but i think for back in the day it's a lot it's really just like a quick you know writing shorthand and what easier way is there to 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 give somebody and this the quickest Dang explanation you can for who a character is than by giving them an archetype from their country. And yeah. at the time, their archetypes that are well known and recognized, of course, like the Russian is like a proud, you know, communist for the for the motherland, of course. Like the African people like worship God still in the 21st century. <laughs> it is still it is still like really easy way to just say like yeah this is who she is she thinks she's a god and she's a mutant and this is why she might act a little Mm hoity-toity without necessarily having to give you know more than two pages worth of character introduction which is to say that i don't think you could pull this off nowadays i think the criticism is too high just look at what if miles morales was thor but i will say that for the day i don't think this was Obviously, back then, the sensibilities, it wasn't um, offensive, but I think it was kind of like a, just kind of a necessary writing technique. It speaks volumes of the writers who would come on these characters later, that, like, we know the origins of these characters. Like, Colossus is rooted in Soviet Russia, and Storm is rooted in this kind of bizarre caricature of a, a tribal African society and yet that does not define these characters because there are a lot of characters who were like really revolutionary for their time and never really progressed beyond that and you can't say that about storm storm has always been revolutionary she remains one of the best x-men and again i just think that speaks volumes for the character and that all starts here and that does like i i probably coming across like i'm being really down on this book and at the end of the day, I think the story is just, like, fine. But its historic mm-hmm. importance is huge. And in a large part, I think it's because, like, it's because of these characters becoming so timeless. Nightcrawler and Colossus. But most of all, I think Storm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I think the, the intent was good. And I'm glad that, you know, more effort is made to uh, better represent. If you're going to have a character from a per- particular background whether it's another country, another race, whatever, um, you know, or, or they try to 
you know, do a better job uh, honestly representing that as opposed to using a shorthand like this. And maybe the, I don't know, maybe it's still happening. I don't know. And and more effort, I think, is made to um, give writers and artists of a particular background a chance to showcase characters of a particular background. And that's that's good. I, I don't think that this intent of this was to be like, oh, let's just throw an Indian in there, you know, whatever. I think this was, you know, they, they meant well and they... they the best they could with their knowledge that they had. Um, I don't know. I don't think any... I mean, we, then we find out that all these people were, like, secret racists or something. You, uh, you never can tell. I'm just... Sorry, I'm still sad about Bill Cosby being a piece of crap. <laughs> so it's like... <laughs> I'm sorry, did I zone out or something? How did we land on that one? Because you can't find out too much about somebody's past, it seems, without finding out, oh boy, they were terrible. You know, and, and yeah. like Len Wein was on a um, regular podcast towards the end of his life, the uh, Nerdist Comics panel, Nerdist Writers panel, um, you know, and, and like, you know, they would frequently talk about the, you know, history of Marvel Comics and, you know, hit up this time, you know, in particular, you know, and really interesting, seemed genuinely nice and everything and like a good person and all that. And so I would hate to be like, what a great guy. And then we find out later, you know, he's he's left us, he's passed. And that's sad. And I would hate to find out later that, oh boy, like, look at all of his, like, you know, secret journals where he blames all of life's problems on blank race, you know, or whatever. You can never tell. I, I'm sorry. I grew up, I grew up watching Bill Cosby himself and not knowing, you know, that this great hour of stand up was brought to you by an awful, awful person. So it's just a real by a bummer. monster. Yeah, so it's like, well, I can't, I can't grow attached to anybody because everybody might suck. So... Speaking of suck, it genuinely sucks that we don't get more Thunderbird. Like, ever since we read that, that Modox 11 story where it's like, the, who was the character again? I don't know, they, they had a, a... Oh, the Wolfman. Yeah, they had a character who was, you know, from a reservation, and he's like a villain, and he has these powers that he's like... Like, that perspective of, like, a tribal person from, like, contemporary America... Who, like, lives with the realities of being on a reservation. Like, that's a perspective that I think is really fascinating. And here's another opportunity to kind of cover that. And it goes basically nowhere. Professor X is a complete racist jerk to Proudstar. And I think he dies the next time he appears. Yeah, he, he like famously dies very fast. And then there's another character. I actually thought he died in this story. And I was kind of... Me too. To the end of the book. <laughs> I think... It's it might be the very next issue. I haven't I haven't like done that research after that, but because um, towards the end it was just like look at this cool fight, you know. And then we get this page where it pisses me off when it, like we get this mere words could never begin to describe the sheer unbridled savagery of the battle that follows. So we won't even attempt it here. And it's like why even say that? Just make it a full panel where you're fighting Krakoa. It's cool enough on its own. You don't have to like talk about how you can't talk about it. That bothers me. But that's that's something that they mention, you know, I've heard where Stan Lee would do that where, you know, writing to the artist just being like, uh, oh yes, on this page will be a, a, an enormous art like, you know, I'll just say like enough said and like the notes to the artist is like make an enormous fight scene here with a million angels and a million devils and they're all punching each other and all this crazy stuff is happening it's yeah it just seems like a writer's cheat i don't know but there are a lot of words in here so it's not like a... i know that stanley we we have almost deified him a little bit in modern pop culture 
and I want to believe that he is a sweet old man. But I also believe that Stanley was really coked up back in the day. <laughs> and sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I feel like pages like that are just, would have been a result of that. <laughs> I feel like the Marvel method was the how do we, how do we draw with Stan <laughs> method. Yeah. Because I just imagine him just kind of a little, just a, just a little hyped up. Walking circles in, in his office, and then and then the island comes alive, and then they start punching and they're kicking and they're stabbing him, and it's just brutal. It's warfare. Draw that. Draw in three panels. Draw that. <laughs> and Jack's like, "Yeah, I can do that." <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. That tradition continues. Yeah, that 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 is that's just what he writes, right? He's like, and then the battle was too great for words and pictures, apparently. <laughs> I don't know. There's some dope art where it's like, yep, we're going to chuck this island in, into space. I just, I thought that was pretty cool. Like soap squeezed in a fist in the bathtub or something. That description was weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of these days, I think we're going to have to read Marvel's voices, indigenous voices. They actually did a, a special with like indigenous creators writing about indigenous characters. We should just read that and, and see if that scratches the itch. But my suspicion is no, it's not enough. But it's it's better than nothing. Ugh. Anyway. Because there have been generations, there were like Western comics for a long time, and I'm just willing to bet that their, the tribal representations in those Western comics was not the best. Yeah, but sometimes, and especially in X-Men, I feel like there is like a surprising amount of depth to some of these characters. Mm-hmm. Right? And so just because it's suboptimal doesn't mean that there's nothing of value in there. I, I also feel, maybe there's a criticism for the X-Men at large. I also feel like the X-Men is allowed to get away with a lot because of the intent of being a sort of allegory for civil rights. And I feel that, especially in the previous years, not now because they've kind of diverted from that so much, but I feel like for a long time we were a, we were just okay with being like, yeah, but, you know, they're representing like the little guy. We were kind of like, okay, yeah, anyways, African queen. African goddess queens being, you know, tribal people here. And, and I mean, she can control the weather, so it's like... Also, yeah, also, I was going to make a comment. Again, kind of like, <laughs> kind of like the whole allegory thing, right? Where, like, the expenses allegory doesn't really work. I mean, it does work, but not as well as I think people like to think it does. Because, like, there is a real danger with mutants, right? Like, there is real danger of a kid who can, like, wake up and, you know, he farts acid or something. But... <laughs> Can you blame the, like, just, uh, can you blame the people of Africa for, like, still believing in, like, gods when you have a literal, like, weather-manipulating woman? So, anyway, I feel like, I don't know, one of the interesting things, because we're, we're talking a lot about religion in this episode, but, like, the, the fact that these, uh, you know, tribal African folks worship a, you know, being that they think is a literal goddess... You know, you're dealing with a world where there are fictional characters who live and walk among men who are gods. Like, they come from a realm of gods. It's so, like, you have to handle things really interestingly when you're talking about religion in this fictional world. Because I feel like, I don't know, it, it's not silly to believe in a god when gods literally walk among you. It just, it's that sort of disconnect where we're expected to bring our real world morality and impose it on these characters and kind of judge them from that perspective which happens a lot and i feel like that's something that 
I don't know, lesser writers struggle with. Claremont would wind up kind of transcending this and moving away from the whole storm goddess thing, I feel like. In this context, feels weird. And also feels like, I don't know, this is the one aspect of this story that really bothered me. Charles Xavier comes up to these people, to Storm, to Colossus, and is like, hey, I need your help. And they are like, don't we have an obligation to help the folks in our own community? And Professor X says, no, your obligation is to help the world, and you can help the world by helping me. And that's kind of a, that's a jerk move, Charles. Well, that's that's his thing. <laughs> we've, yeah, we've established that Charles is kind of a, a, like a piece of crap. He's got moves like jerk wad instead of moves like Jagger. Yeah, we we caught what you're going for. Also, <laughs> I wish I hadn't, but I did. <laughs> and I also think Storm didn't need to be topless, but here we are. So didn't oh, need yeah, to she be topless. Was, huh? They did that for us. Yeah. No. No. <laughs> I also like again again always a criticism about like female costumes, but I love that the men are like wrapped up in like. A costume from neck to toe. Some of them even have sleeves. And Storm is like in secondhand bondage armor. <laughs> it is a good costume. Yeah. It is a good costume. I'm not saying it's not. I just think it's it's never not funny to me how we designed women's costumes in superhero media. Yeah, no, true. It's just, I mean, Storm is a fashion icon. I, I don't know that she's ever had a bad costume. I, I love me some Mohawk Storm, you know. She's Her got like a jacket silver bodysuit thing, like, is a really good costume. Uh, yeah, well, she has big hair and lightning bolt, lightning bolt earrings. Yeah, I, I, again, I just don't think she's ever had a bad costume. Ugh, anyway, good story. I think I like it more for its uh, historical impact than than anything else but you know it's still pretty good pretty enjoyable a- anything anybody else has to say about that one just give it a chance as a stepping stone from you know old x-men to new x-men times and the you know chris claremont run so i don't know art's fun i yeah i don't know that i would necessarily recommend it to anybody as a as a first read no maybe just <laughs> <laughs> But I definitely would recommend it. I, I like just in kind of in general. Like it's it's one of those historical items where it's like if you really want to see like when they brought this group together, because that's I feel like the other super recognizable half of the X Men right after the original mm-hmm. cast. So I think I think it's worth checking out just to see like where it all started and began. And really, really, we've read a lot worse from a lot sooner. Yeah. Like, in the last 20 years, and it's like, you said, this is a thing you put on paper, huh? So, um, I don't think this creative team, I I know that earlier I talked about this, I I don't think this creative team are bad people or anything, um, but like I said, I would just hate to find out that they were the whole time, but I don't think that they are. Um, I think that they've all done, you know, good things for Marvel Comics and for comics in general, so... But it's time to get me pictures of Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, is that a segue I smell? Until you drew attention to it. Dang uh, it. I always I I wish I drew more things than just attention. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, Sinktober's coming up. <laughs> oh goodness. Oh yeah, I feel the stress of it too. <laughs> yeah. I'm not I'm not gonna do it. Anyway, anyways. Uh yeah, so we also read Spider-Man Life Story Annual number one. We're revisiting this from the Spider-Man Life Story uh, miniseries that we read a while back. And this is, again, returning team. So writer Chip Zdarsky and artist Mark Bagley. 
Or is it Bagley? I think it's Bagley. And this annual focuses on Jay Jonah's life story in this kind of universe, right? Where Spider-Man ages with the times. <laughs> I, I was going to say it with us, but I don't want to think about me aging right now. Oh man, yeah. Midlife crisis right now. Can't handle it. Yeah, so so this kind of just picks up, uh, you know, pretty early on. I think it picks up in the seventies, and he is kind of full swing, you know, yelling and blaming it Spider Man for everything. The major point in this book is that early on he gets called out by the Scorpion by, by Mac Gargan, who is on his deathbed, supposedly in prison, and spills the beans and tells everybody that, or tells the police that it was J. Jonah Jameson that kind of turned him into what he is, which lands J. Jonah into prison, which is actually where we spend most of the time in this book with him, as he is writing his memoirs, kind of making sure that the world knows that Spider-Man is a menace, and he's part of like this little consult group where people who are obsessed with Spider-Man or kind of superheroes, is like they blame them for their being in prison and not necessarily themselves for the things that they did. So he's kind of in this group thing, and he still just won't accept that it's Spider-Man. That it's not Spider-Man who put him in prison. It's it's himself and his obsession. And so while he's in prison, he's writing these, these memoirs. He befriends Norman Osborn, who Norman Osborn is kind of recovering. He's accepted, you know, kind of what's happened and who he was and, you know, why he is where he is. And as the story progresses, we get to the part where Gwen Stacy dies and she dies. And J. Jonah calls Peter, obviously not knowing that he's Spider-Man and kind of being like, are you okay? Also, yeah, we can get him now. This, you and I, we can get him. I know people, right? And to which Peter just yells at him and just tells him that, like, you know, your obsession is is worse than anything else. Spider-Man is just a man. Just leave him be, blah, 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 that type of thing, right? And, uh, Norman eventually leaves and uh, dies kind of shortly after he has a heart attack because he went back to all of his uh, paraphernalia is what they call it. And, his goblin gear. Yeah. And... So eventually he gets out of prison and he kind of reconciles with, with the idea of like who he was and what he is. And when Norman Osborn died, he left him a will. And when he went, when he goes to the place that's listed in the will, there is a giant kind of Spider-Man emblazoned robot suit for him to wear or to take. And he uses that to kill Mac Gargan and doing so also dies from a heart attack. At his funeral, not a whole lot of people are there. And Peter Parker goes to visit, seemingly retired at this point, and he meets the kind of psychiatrist or therapist from the prison who was helping conduct those, you know, those talks. And we find out that she's a Gwen Stacy clone, and she's kind of been working at helping other people recover with the Spider-Man kind of sort of illness, right? Where anybody who's really affected by Spider-Man really kind of suffers whether it's his fault or theirs, he's kind of the common denominator in this whole thing. And so she kind of talks about how she, that's what she's been doing. And even in his final moments, he has kind of recovered a little bit. He was definitely on the way to recovery as he hands Peter Parker a book, which is his memoir. But it's it has been refocused to or from blaming Spider-Man to talking about his obsession and kind of how it led him to ruin. And that's that. What did you guys think? think so this book is pretty good yeah yeah this is one of those things that i appreciate this is how i think an annual can really benefit a series i feel like a lot of time annuals are just kind of like whatever issues a lot of the time they're nice vehicles for something fun sometimes something dumb sometimes you know we get namor out of it 
But I think something like this really does enhance a little bit of the original experience. So having that look at Jay Jonah and actually being able to give him a focus and really kind of look and zone in on what would what made him tick essentially in this kind of sort of timeline. I thought was interesting. I like that it's really about his recovery at the end and just kind of coming to terms with his obsession. Like it pushes everybody away from him. Not just like his yelling, just being Jay Jonah, but also the fact that like his son is dying. He gets infected with something in space. He gets attacked and Spider-Man saves him. And Jonah can't accept that he saved him, that he saved his son or that even or that Spider-Man has saved Jonah from Matt Gargan at least twice in this you know series so and and like just that hatred just kind of how it pushes everybody away and how he's just kind of stuck in prison and at the end you know not a lot of people were there to mourn him that's a little sad it made me sad this this book i was like oh jonah but it had a good ending i love that he came around but you know i love just the angry like he's a menace from behind the desk you know classic jane and jameson so i was like he's getting out of prison in like a couple of years oh no oh no because i didn't remember that being part of um spider-man life story i don't know if did they bring up uh it's been so long since we read it did they bring up J. Jonah jameson during that or is that just like skipped over and then we flesh it out in this story i think he makes an appearance early on but I don't think there's, I don't think we really follow any sort of arc or we even really follow up on him. Yeah. The stories that get mentioned here where Jameson helps create the Scorpion and then Jameson attacks Spider-Man in a weird robot with his face on a TV screen. Like those are classic Spider-Man stories. I, so the assumption here is that you've read some of the 60s Spider-Man adventures because those are direct from early Spider-Man. But then, you oh, know, I mean, the story. Uh, I know, I know that. <laughs> but you know other people may not you know yeah i just i like i've read a lot of those early spider-man stories and i remember in particular the one where J. jonah jameson gets the weird robot with his face on the tv screen it's i don't think it's very good <laughs> i think a lot of those early spider-man stories like the first story is fantastic and after that it struggles for a little bit to find its footing again that's my opinion um mm-hmm. but anyway like this is sort of a fascinating take on what probably should have actually happened to J. Jonah Jameson canonically, because it's not a secret, really, that he created all of these supervillains and then ultimately faces zero real-world repercussions for them. You know, he becomes a mayor, he becomes this very well-respected individual and kind of maintains that persona for years, where, like, I know we like to joke about, you know, these these provocateurs and these, you know, larger-than-life personalities who get away with all of this egregious stuff and we wish that they would be brought to justice uh in the real world but i i think that actually creating murderers and sending out giant robots to destroy massive property like that is something that would in the real world absolutely land you in jail yeah no matter how powerful you are like i i do think that destruction of property like that would probably you know result in that unless it was government sanctioned and you know we can get into the real world nonsense because the real world is terrible sometimes, but we don't have to because this is a comic book. And I do, I, I really like the introspective direction this all takes. There's one line in here on, I think it's page 13. Jameson is like kind of soliloquizing in his head after meeting Norman Osborn. Uh, it says, the burden of J. Jonah Jameson is that I'm always right. And it's like, that is the perfect summation 
of Jameson's character. I love that so much. Ah, so good. I, I think for me, as somebody who like studied journalism, that was my major in, in college before I dropped out two classes before graduating because I'm a fool. <laughs> that a little personal. I've always liked J. Jonah Jameson for a little, like just a little bit. A little bit as a caricature Right, of kind of the old-timey newspaper guy. Something that I don't think gets brought up enough in the series, particularly because he's played kind of as a fool or a clown or, or you know, just a straight-up villain most of the time, is the fact that, like, he should be a lot more fact-focused, right? And I think in here they kind of lean on that a little bit, where he talks about how he's a news writer, he's a newspaper man at heart, and how... He used to hate opinion pieces, right? And, like, that's what became of him was, like, just constantly shouting and spewing opinions that he believes to be fact, even though they are clearly not. And I think that's something interesting that just doesn't really get tackled enough, but I don't know how you could meaningfully do that at this point with J. Jonah. People have done it. It's hard. Yeah. And I, I think, at least for me, one of my favorite portrayals of Jonah being kind of a you know, full of integrity, is in the Raimi movies. Oh, yeah. In the Raimi movies, he is, he is you know, kind of a fact-based guy. Yes, he obviously is pushing the agenda, which, you know, you can't beat Jonah and not be pushing an anti-Spider-Man agenda. But when it comes, like, right down to it, and I think a lot of people have recently started to kind of notice this in, like, some of the scenes, is when he gets attacked with a goblin trying to find who finds, who takes the pictures of Spider-Man. He protects him, right? Like, he's being... He's upholding kind of that newspaper code. I don't want to say code because it makes it seem like it's an unwritten thing. But there's a lot of things about journalism that when you learn the industry, you learn the profession, there's a lot of things that are kind of set up and built in to protect, you know, you as as a writer, your your sources. A lot of things like that like are set up to protect you in a legal fashion. And so Jonah doing that in that movie is very kind of telling of him extending that to not just like his sources, right? But extending that to the people that works for him for his protection. And I like to see, I like that in here we get just a little bit of a glimpse of him getting away from that and kind of understanding that, he, you know, what happened to him that led him down that road. It's only a glimpse and I wish it was more, but I thought it was good. Yeah. I, yeah, I, uh, the, I'm trying to think of any other casting choices as perfect as jk simmons as jd on jameson you don't trust anyone i trust my barber i love i love that in a in a movie that doesn't like hold up as well as i want it to like that's still it holds up i don't know what you're talking about it holds up it holds up the second one holds up even better they those two movies are still pretty darn good there is a lot more good than bad but like like Macy Gray in the we can't call it the Macy's Day Parade Parade the Unity Day Festival, and the <laughs> the Power Rangers mask and the the oh the friggin I don't know now I've come around because the there's a whole subreddit called Raimi memes and it's so dang good it just <laughs> makes everything better I like how the Spider Man Life Story Annual goes really really hard on getting rid of the Hitler mustache. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. He like it's gone by like page five. Yeah, he's like clean shaven part of it even, which is weird to see. But the character's still recognizably Jameson like the entire time. There's still like the black in the mustache right under his nose, even when he grows the full beard. It's 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 really interesting uh, take on the character visually. Quite liked it. 
I thought, um, I wanted to point out the art. I thought the art was very good consistently throughout. Great expressions, great acting in here. All characters recognizable. Like you mentioned, Stephen, you know, it's Jameson throughout, but we do see, like, what would happen if he was in prison and kind of let his facial hair grow and we get this, you know, full, full beard. But, um, yeah, just impressive, like, giving a new spin to this classic story where, you know, we understand the dynamic of J. Jonah Jameson and, and Spider-Man. And in the end, he really was a softy, like we hoped he was the whole time, and we get that, um, you know, him taking responsibility in the end. So, nice. I was bummed out that he was in prison for so long, but, you know, good for him for turning it around. And there's also all of this this stuff in here really about aging, and as, like, I'm, I'm not old. Like, I'm still in my 30s, but I feel old more often than not yeah, nowadays. tell yourself that. <laughs> That's what I do. You're not that far behind me, although. But, like, I don't know. I'm looking at page 19. Jameson is, is talking to the Gwen Stacy clone. And she mentions how Norman Osborn went back and, like, slid back into his own ways. And Jameson corrects her, and he's like, sometimes people just surround themselves with their past, good or bad, especially when you get older and the past is all you have. And it's just like, I don't know why. I think it's just because I have an anxious tendency, but, like, I have, you know, beautiful family. I've got my, you know, my wife, little baby boy. He's not even two yet. And I'm already just, like, kind of dreading the day when Charlie gets old enough and moves out of the house. He's going to do to me what I've done to my parents, which is, you know, I still visit my parents. I still call my parents, but they do not see me most of the time. I am living my own life kind of free of them. And I am not ready to let go of my little boy. And again, that's silly. He's with me, for better or worse, for many years to come still. And yet... It's like these sorts of reminiscences on aging. It just like heightens, it brings up all of this anxiety in me because this is stuff that I know is coming and I'm not emotionally ready for it and I don't know how to get emotionally ready for it. And I don't have time because I'm just going to have to live my life in the interim. Ugh. Uh, just so much anxiety, but it's like a good kind of anxiety. I really like the, the feels that these books have been bringing up in me. I feel the same way. Now I'm sad. <laughs> <laughs> Because my daughter's in, 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 you know, school now, and it's just, no, you're supposed to be my little baby forever. And, like, you know, people say that, and it's stupid. And you're like, come on, like, why would you, you know, you have an adult child, they're not your baby, you're an idiot, blah, blah, blah. And now I'm like, I don't want them to grow up, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, I think for me, what I thought was really interesting here, and I kind of mentioned that when I went on my little spiel earlier, it's really that, that whole learning to take responsibility mm -hmm. and kind of coming to terms that like, you know, it's not, I think, and I, you know, I think for a lot of people, this book probably serves as an allegory for like addiction of other kinds, uh, because that's what he's obsessed with, right? He's obsessed with, with this menace and kind of addicted to that anger and kind of that righteous feeling of, you know, I have to be right and I have to prove to other people I'm right. And I think that's an interesting take or not, not even an interesting take because that just is Jonah Jameson, but I think it's just a really interesting examination of it. Uh, mostly because I don't have children to watch grow up and get away from me. So I have to relate to this somehow. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's interesting, though, seeing obsession as an addiction. Um, I had not thought of that, but of course it is. And it's obvious now that you've said that, that, yeah, that's, he's, he can't put it away. He can't let it go. He's in prison and he's still spending his time obsessed with him. For me, the part where it feels so much like addiction is when he calls Peter Parker 
right? Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. in his head, he's calling to console him. But like, I think the kind of addicted part of his brain is just like, this is it. Somebody else who gets us. Like somebody who gets me and they're going to help feed me this, you know, righteous indignation that I have against Spider-Man. Like, finally, I, I can get my fix somewhere else. That's kind of how I read that. Yeah. He's a, he's addicted to that rage of hall. <laughs> I don't know that we're going to top that. That was pretty good. <laughs> when someone, like, triggers a memory that you forgot that you had really strong, just like, oh, jumps right to it. Yeah, let's rank these. So, we currently have... 209 stories on our list. And the characters that we read today all feature in our top 10. Spider-Man is our number two on the list. Oh, I guess, we do we have X-Men in the top 10? We don't. Uh, number 12 is the Dawn of X prelude. Adam Warlock is in Infinity Gauntlet, which is at number nine. Um, X-Men and Spider-Man also feature in our bottom 10 in multiple places. Spider-Man is 209, The Evil That Men Do. The Draco, which is X-Men, is number 208. One More Day is another Spider-Man, number 206. Uh, Ultimate Wolverine versus Hulk is number 203. Sins Pass is another Spider-Man, 204. Boy. So where do all these stories go? Let's start with uh, Warlock, number one. Or uh, the Marvel Presents Warlock, or whatever that book was called. So I enjoyed it for the art more than anything, and... So I don't want to put it too low. But again, the rereadability, I think, is part of the factor when I think about where things should go and what would I rather read again um, and what one is um, I'm fine with. And that, whether I want to read it again or not, kind of puts it low. So it's tricky. Mm-hmm. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm going a lot lower than I thought I would with this one, just looking on that. Is it hard to rock a rhyme? It's tricky. It's... <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's, we do that so often. Um, I have a proposal. I, I know where I would put this. Uh, number 127, between House of M and the Origin of the Character Eternity, which was another book that was a shorter read, but had really good art. And this one I would rather read than that book because this one's shorter. Ah, uh, you said 127? 127 is where I'm thinking. Okay. And I would put it lower than, I'm looking at this, lower than Eternals, which is 135. But definitely above 141, which is Mary Jane Homecoming, so... Oh, just kidding. This has to go at number 142. Dang it. No, I mean, we're in the same neighborhood. It's like, I want to... I don't know. I kind of want to put it um, above Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, because that's like a Disney story that's just on the app, because, you know, media conglomerates. But... it, Big Thunder Mountain Railroad is like a, I don't know, like it's a tighter story and it's, it's I don't know, it it's makes a little bit more sense. It's not homework. <laughs> it's not homework. Yeah, thank you. I would rather yeah. look at the Warlock story than look at Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. And I think in a visual medium, medium that does count for something. That, you know, that's fair. That is fair. Yeah. So I would put it, I would put it at 130. Then and so, Aldo, um, you're kind of you know you're the decider because um, Stephen wants it at one twenty seven, the new one twenty seven, right? That's kind of what I was thinking, yeah. And you're saying above Big Thunder Mountain Railroad or below? Above, so it'd be the new one thirty one. I'm fine with that. I'm fine with John's positioning. Okay. It's lower. 
Yep, I got no. Pr- <laughs> I got no problem with that. Let's put it at one thirty-one. I wanted to like the story yes. more than I actually did, um, but I don't think it was a waste of time. I just think that your time is better spent reading other stuff. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. I would not call it a waste of time, but it is. Yeah, there's other stuff you. This is homework. Yeah. Like if if you really want to know more about you know Adam Warlock, this is what you read. Yep. Not necessarily because you want to, but just because you have to. Okay, I feel like this might be a potentially divisive one uh giant size x-men number one where does that go so historic but also not the best as the discussion kind of led and you know good art but that might not be enough to to save it so i would say i would say higher than warlock but probably not much based on that i was actually going to suggest around the doom introduction which is number 70 on our list. Yeah, I actually like... Because this is homework that uh, you will also kind of enjoy because the story is still pretty good. The art is still Mm -hmm. pretty good. These characters are timeless, but there are better iterations of all of this stuff. So I don't know that it would go much higher than that. I like the Doom uh, analog. Like I like I like the comparison. So putting it around number seventy, or maybe even putting it just like right above that, because I think I would rather read it than Prisoners of Doom. But Prisoner of Doom has the thing as a swashbuckling Blackbeard. It does have the thing as Blackbeard? You do find out that that Blackbeard, real historical figure Blackbeard, was actually the thing in a trench coat and a fake beard. <laughs> Which is delightful. <laughs> yes. uh, yeah, okay. I'd be okay with putting it at number 71 above Future Imperfect. Yeah, I'm okay with that. Cool. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. Not that divisive then. Lastly, Spider-Man Life I'm Story just surprised. Manual. I thought the X-Men book was going to go higher than what John would. I'm realistic. I'm realistic. <laughs> Second Coming got pretty high, so I'm, you know... All, all things considered with X-Men, you know, I'm okay. Uh, where do we want to rank the Life Story Annual? Where is the original Life Story? It's number 15. So that's, that's I think, our ceiling, because this isn't better than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I don't think it goes that high unless we want to include it in the Life Story ranking, which I actually don't think we should. I think they are no. different stories. Yeah, They're both I agree. complete without each other. Yes. Right. Yes, that's a good point. I know where my floor is. Um, it, this isn't going to narrow it down much, but right now, kind of like the, the first point that I go to is like a comparison for this is a really good single issue. Is that what if magic became the Sorcerer Supreme story, which is currently at number 42? I mm-hmm. think this is a little bit better than that. So I would yes. say it doesn't go any lower than 42. I don't know where in the middle of that this goes necessarily. I think pretty close to 42, but yeah, that, that's kind of what I'm thinking. I am leaning to just under Karnak, which is number 40. Yeah, so kind of in that neighborhood. I'm not opposed. I think Beta Ray Bill is better, because it has a, they say Scuttlebutt in it quite a bit. (laughs) (laughs) Karnak was a really interesting read and a really nice, really good take on the character. I think, I think this is probably just a slightly better read than the Star Wars, the original script adaptation. Yeah, this, it's similar because 
we're very familiar with Spider-Man's history. We're very familiar with um, Jameson's attitude. And so, you know, the adaptation of the Star Wars script, like, we, we know Star Wars. Everybody knows Star Wars. And so <laughs> it, that, that is a good neighborhood for it. I'd be okay with um, 41, it being the new 41. Steven, any objections? No, I don't think so. Um, Boy, we were supposed to fight more on these, weren't we? <laughs> <laughs> we might just be tired. We've been recording for a while. That's probably it's, that's it's, fair. That's fair. That's that's Aldo man life story. Just tired. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see how next time leaves us feeling. We, it's a little bit more focused. Our next episode is going to go up, and it's going to be official spooky season. We're going to be in the month of October, and we're going to kick things off by reading some ghost writer stories. Uh, specifically, we've all kind of collectively decided that we haven't read enough Robbie Reyes. So we're going to read two Robbie Reyes stories, starting with his introduction in All New Ghost Rider, numbers one through five. And then we're going to read a more recent, I guess it's not even that much more recent, it's only a couple of years later. But when he steps up to the big leagues, when he's in the Avengers, we're going to read the story arc Avengers Final Host from the 2018 Avengers series, issues one through six. Uh, I don't know. All, most of my experience with Ghost Rider comes from the Danny Ketch era. I think most people consider to be a bit of an embarrassing version of the character. Uh, I don't know. It was the 90s, so that probably tracks. But yeah, I'm excited to read this new version of the character who's the one that's actually appeared on TV in a show that I never watched. I don't know who watched it. Somebody did. It got like five seasons, didn't it? Yeah, it had like seven, I think. Seven? Dang. Avanisu is super excited about that, so... Oh yeah, let's talk. Oh, we don't have time to talk. It about beat Lost. Lost only had six seasons, right? Yeah, or yeah, six. G Willikers. Remember how those si- those six seasons ended up being for nothing? Am I talking about Lost or Shield? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> is for people who smell really stinky bad. And uh, My Hero Academia is uh, uh, a big old pile of garbage. Hey, hey, I'm here too, remember? (laughs) 